guessing where you shouldn't have been a messing. And now someone else is getting all your best. Welcome, it's Quack Talk time. I'm Crystal here, KTUH. Time for some cultural women slash socially uh, contradicting, sensitively um, challenging subjects. Today we're going to have, hmm, I don't even know how to put it, because it's a pretty heavy loaded topic. Slavery, my God, where do we even start with that? Particularly the slave ship. Now, when do you hear on radio a discussion on the slave ship? Well, obviously here on Campus Radio, the best people's radio ever. I have the most amazing professor here, historian, Professor Marcus Redeker, who's going to be with us in a couple of seconds to talk about the slave ship and all that comes from the history from below. One of these days, these boots are going to walk all over you. You keep playing where you shouldn't be playing And you keep thinking that you'll never get burned Ha! I just found me a brand new box of matches, yeah And what he knows you ain't had time to learn These boots are made for walking And that's just what they'll do One of these days these boots are gonna walk all over you Are you ready, boots? Start walking Are you guys ready? Ready to walk those boots? Well, back to here, Studio K2H. I'm Crystal, tuning in here um, to talk about the slave ship. Now, again, we don't know anything. We don't even know how to approach a subject, so I'm going to start with our dear... Uh, no, he's the professor with the Dan and Maggie Inui Distinguished Chair in Democratic Ideals uh, Fellowship here at UH Manoa, so we, we are very privileged to have him here. Um, it's funny I said privileged because this is kind of part of what we're talking about, too, on slavery and how the privilege of history has kind of shaped how we view um, racism, how we view uh, slavery, and many, many things we don't know that uh, existed. And uh, Marcus has able to unveil in a very different light. And that is his host concept. So I'm going to invite him to talk about perhaps even starting with the class I'm taking with him right now, which is History from Below. And may I have the honor of introducing uh, Professor Redeker. Hello. Hi, Hi Crystal. Uh, thank you so much for coming, Marcus. Um, so let's talk. Um, now, your, your class on History from Below I remember distinctly the first day of class, you asked us all what you thought our purposes were in life. And I thought that was quite powerful and kind of challenging because most people don't think about these things in their entire life. Um, so I'm going to throw it back to you and why don't we start with your purpose in life. I knew this would come back around, <laughs> this boomerang effect. Uh, I think uh, my purpose, uh, Crystal, is to uh, educate, to write history, and to make part of history those who have usually been left out. By that I mean uh, enslaved people, 
working people of all kinds, of all nations, of all races and genders, uh, and to try to show how these people have been a crucial part uh, of the making of the modern world. So this is what we mean when we say history from below, meaning that uh, ordinary people have a part to play, especially when they participate in movements. Uh, the civil rights movement, the black power movement, the anti-war movement, the women's movement, all these movements demanded a new kind of history, one that took race and slavery seriously, one that took imperialism seriously, one that took women and their lives seriously. So, so this, is, uh, this is what I think it is my purpose in life to try to, to teach and to write. Do you think that comes from, obviously, shaped by your upbringing? Uh, so you were born in Kentucky, uh, and you are you have a brother, and you were from a working-class family, and you actually, my favorite story is that you dropped out of school and worked at a factory for three years before going back and pursuing your That's degrees. Right. That's right. Yeah, I think my family background is definitely part of my interest in history from below, but just as important... Uh, are these movements that I mentioned because my whole view of the world was really shaped by those movements for social justice. Any particular ones you want to well, address? Well, uh, civil rights, mm-hmm. uh, black power. Where were uh, you during the civil rights? Well, I was in Richmond, Virginia. Oh. This is, I was in the South. I grew up really in the Upper South. Um, I went away to college as a basketball player, uh, dropped out of school, and then went to work in a factory. How did your parents feel about that when you dropped out of school? Well, they weren't very happy about it, but uh, they thought it would be good for me to go to work and that I might learn something and, <laughs> okay. uh, and get myself together. And, and everybody in my family had worked in factories, so this was not an unusual thing to do. My brother actually retired from the same factory that I worked in in huh. Richmond, Virginia. But it was in that factory where my education really began. And uh, that's, I think, when I really began to think about uh, issues of race and class uh, and began to get interested in history. Can you talk a little bit about racism that you uh, witnessed while you were working in the factory? Yes. Uh, in, in the factory that I worked in, there were about 3,500 workers, and there were basically three generations. And in my generation, the younger workers, were basically uh, mixed, black and white. There were very few older black workers, and a lot of the older white workers were very racist. In fact, in our part of the factory, we had a grand vizier of the Ku Klux Klan. Oh. So we had quite serious uh, racial tensions uh, in, in our part of the factory. So this is, this is really something that made a big impression on me, uh, and it fueled my desire to learn. But uh, balancing that with perhaps your family background, I mean, did you question things from work and brought it home and discussed issues of racism, or was it something that you kind of just took on, on your own because you, it was just part of your life? Well, I had basically, if you grow up in the South, yeah. you are conscious of and dealing with racism your whole life. Right. And I think this is, a, this is a very important thing. Some people pretend that it's not an issue, but that's just a form of denial. So uh, one thing that was very important to me was, was basically playing basketball in high school. and uh, With mostly black kids? Well, we were, our school was primarily white, but okay. there, were, there, there was a, a, a 
a black part of the student population and several black members of the basketball team. So this was kind of my introduction to black America through sport, huh. uh, through friendships and uh, uh, getting to know people. I think that that really, that really helped me to understand what the world was like. And it's actually something that a lot of white people in the South never really quite experience. So sport because kind of, they were isolated in their own pockets exactly. of privilege. Right, exactly. And, and uh, basketball opened up a lot of uh, possibilities for me. So on the courts, um, were black people friendly to white people? What was the dynamic well, on that? I'll give you an example. What happened in my high school, our primarily white high school, uh, our biggest rival was the old black high school, Carver High School, uh, uh, just outside of Richmond. And uh, we, we had uh, really very important games against Carver, but the two teams, the members of the two teams became friends and we actually met outside of school on the weekends to play together. Oh, okay. And as a friend of mine put it, uh, he said, did, did your team play the other team or did the white players play the black players? Uh, the answer was no. We just picked up sides as you would in any other playground uh, situation uh, with uh, two of the best players picking the best players to be on their team and we played together and this was really quite a powerful bond huh. that formed beneath the level of official society. So it's basically just a bunch of teenagers getting together to play basketball but crossing a color line in the South that was very real. Yeah. I mean, were there courts where you weren't, certain people weren't allowed to play? You know, there were like there white were, courts but, and... But, but most, of the, most of the city courts, the Richmond city courts were... Yeah. Interracial. You know, I am fascinated by um, segregation because I didn't grow up with that, obviously. I grew up in San Francisco and Hong Kong, but tracing, as you know, of my documentary project, um, my grandmother's family grew up in the Deep South, and during the segregated time, it's interesting what the non-blacks and whites, how they positioned themselves. Right. Uh, so, you know, my grandmother's family would go to a white school, but come back to the black neighborhood where they lived exactly. and served the black community in the right. store. So it's a very peculiar thing. And again, there are so many um, ambigu ambiguous positions in this kind of binary American history. And, and you seem to be the kind of the, the, the king of unraveling all these silent spaces, uh, particularly with underrepresented groups you were mentioning? Well, I, I think what happened was, in, in, in my experience, uh, both in high school and especially working in the factory, I gained a real commitment to understanding the, the role of race and class in American history and how those were linked. Uh, so that really drove me to graduate school and serious study in history, which I began in uh, 1976, and, and I'd say those that set of concerns has guided my research ever since. Yeah, and if people are just tuning in now, I just want to remind you that I'm speaking with Professor Marcus Redeker here, who is an award-winning um, uh, novelist, historian, filmmaker, uh, famous um, film, which we're going to talk about a little bit later, Ghost of Amistad. In fact, before I forget, let's tell people where they can watch that, because I know I'm going to... Uh, yes, that, there's going to be a screening of that film uh, at the... Doris Duke Theater, Doris correct? Duke Theater. At the Honolulu on, Museum. Right. April 11th, April Thursday, 11th. April 11th at 7 p.m. That's next week. Right. All right. So, um, peop history folks, you know, Ghost of Amistad. But I guess a prequel to that is we have to understand the slave ship and the Amistad, obviously, and all these other... And, and your most recent book um, it also 
you need to talk about too. I, I don't even know where to begin with all these things um, because your most recent one uh, called The Fearless Benjamin Lay uh, about a Quaker dwarf who became the first revolution abolitionist. You know, you all your focuses have to do with slavery. And again, is this something, what is it that's compelled you to research book after book and, and prying apart something that you thought you thoroughly researched and prying in again to find a different angle on the same subject? What is it? That's obsessing you. Well, as I said, it's this it's this primacy of race and class. Yes. And and it's actually an effort to to show people that the we put a lot of energy into denying our history. And one and this will take us directly to this book, The Slave Ship and Human History, that I published in two thousand seven. Uh, the truth is we live with a legacy of slavery every day in the United States but we, we spend a lot of energy pretending that we don't. So part of my work has been to recover uh, uh, and make real to people that lost history uh, and to show that there is really a, a very important set of lessons that we must face in the present if we're going to build a better future. But do you feel like the political climate today, we're going backwards, or is this actually a good sensitive time to revisit yeah. those well, issues. I'll put, I'll put it this way. I thought that with the civil rights and black power movements of the uh, 60s and 70s, we had banished racism from public life. Huh. It's back now with a vengeance in yeah. public life. So this, this battle is going to have to be fought all over again. But I, at the same time, I think that the, the nature of contemporary politics is producing a lot of new activists. Yes. Who are interested in fighting these battles and others. And activists in different areas. You've got the <coughs> women's issues, you've got the political, you've got the race, you've got the intersections of all these things that are kind of emerging out of the woodworks. I, so I actually feel for the first time some kind of a beginning of some movement. Yeah, you feel movement. You definitely feel movement. But and it's not like the movements before, where movements were so um, energized and, and collaborative. It, it, it's not that way yet. Okay. It might get that way. Uh, movements arise in surprising ways. If you think, for example, about uh, Occupy or mm -hmm. Black Lives Matter or Me Too, historians, sociologists, political pundits, no one saw them coming. Mm. They just burst onto the scene and have had really quite serious uh, impact. Yeah. So this is, a, to me, it's a very hopeful thing that... Um, movements can arise in unexpected ways. Yeah, um, and even through a little, small, humble talk show like this, we <laughs> can create a small stir on the importance of addressing issues that relate to racism uh, by sourcing back to your book, Slave Ship and Amistad. Um, so I'm gonna, I am going to uh, start talking about that, but I think we need to introduce with a little song. Why don't you introduce, you suggested um, a Paul Robeson song, and I'm going to play that. And why did you choose this song? That's I'll one tell of you, them. After you after people hear it. <laughs> okay, so this is No More Auction Block, um, and there are many versions of I've, as I've been discovering, but this one is by Paul Robeson, and enjoy it, and we'll come back, and don't go away because we're talking about important history here with uh, Professor Marcus Redeker. That was No More Auction Block by Paul Robeson. Now, this is a very kind of a peculiar uh, source of music that you would hear on K2H, but let's ask Professor Redeker why he chose this piece. 
This is a song that uh, basically goes back to the time after the Civil War and the Emancipation Proclamation in which the African-American community is remembering the horrors of slavery. No more auction block for me means that I can't be bought and sold as property anymore. Uh, no more driver's lash for me. I won't be driven by violence to pick cotton. But then notice the refrain, many thousands gone. Hmm. What it means is that many people died in these really awful, violent circumstances of slavery and that we need to remember this and make this part of our humanity moving forward. So this is one of the things that's so moving about Paul Robeson's rendition. It's solemn, mm, it's very. powerful, but it's also very historical, and it's all about the need to remember, mm. to remember that history. So, so this is actually uh, one of the reasons why I wrote this book, The Slave Ship, A Human History. Mm. Uh, I, around 2003, 2004, I realized that we had the... 200th anniversary of the abolition of the slave trade coming up in Great Britain, and 2008 would be the 200th anniversary in the United States. So I thought I would like to write a book that really showed the human dimensions, or shall I say, the inhuman yes. dimensions of life aboard a slave ship. So I, I worked on this book for several years, uh, and, and the goal of it was really to, to treat uh, the slave trade as the violent institution that it was. In other words, we have lots of studies of the slave trade, and they talk about mortality rates and the length of the Middle Passage. That means traveling from West Africa to the Americas. But I felt like those kinds of abstractions really did not help us wrestle with the moral complexities of race in uh, the contemporary world. So I wanted a, a, a radically human history. So I talk about the enslaved people on board these ships, what the experience was like on board these ships. I talk about who the sailors were who sailed the ships. I talked about the ship captains and uh, how they used violence to try to control people during the Middle Passage. And so my goal was to really present a, a human portrait uh, a history from below, you might say, of the slave trade so that we can understand it more deeply. And by being able to draw up this human portrait, how did, I mean, people are like, how did you even find these sources to find yeah. individual accounts that you yeah. can actually source? Well, one big advantage is the slave trade, which went on, the, the transatlantic slave trade, went on for uh, almost 400 years. And this makes it unusual in human history. Most really violent episodes of history are quite short, like the uh, Nazi uh, Holocaust in World War II, 1939 to 1945, uh, six million Jews massacred and slaughtered. Uh, but the slave trade went on for about 375 years. Mm. Uh, it was predicated on a similar kind of violence. So, so that being said, there were thousands and thousands and thousands of slaving voyages. And since it was such an important business, there was a lot of documentation produced about it. Uh, records by ship captains, mm. the logs the of their voyages. And, right. Yeah, their journals insurance records, huh. uh, government records, 
records of, written by passengers who were on board a slave ship. And then in a few cases, we have uh, autobiographies written by Africans who survived the Middle Passage uh, and then went on to write their own recollection of the experience. So I had to use all of my skills, uh, how to find sources for people who don't usually write very many sources of their own, these being very poor people, um, to, try to, to, to try to find the sources that would allow me to explain what that experience was like. Uh, and to really evoke the horror, because the slave ship was a place of horror. It was a chamber of horrors. Mm. Uh, and it was deliberately made so by the, by the captains who ran the ship. They used violence and terror to try to control people. But the redeeming part of this awful story is that the enslaved people fought back in every conceivable way. Uh, I can give examples if you like. Yes, let's start uh, with. Well, f for example, one of the things that many Africans would, would do on board these ships is try to kill themselves right. in the belief that their spirits would return home to Africa. Was that the main reason, or was there some hopelessness, or was there a kind of, it was more of a redemption, it, or? It, it was both, but there was definitely a spiritual belief that if, when your body dies, your soul will go home, as they put it, to Guinea, as West Africa was called at that time. And slave ship captains were extremely aware that Africans would try to do this, and they tried to stop them because they wanted right. to make money on the sale of their bodies when they arrived uh, in Virginia or Jamaica or whatever, right. Brazil. So they tried to keep them alive exactly. to whatever extent that meant. They wanted. They knew that a certain number were going to die. Okay, right. so they accepted that. Okay. But um, so they would do things like they would put nettings to around catch. the edge of the, the ship's rails to prevent people from jumping overboard. Uh, they would do things like, well, here was a very common thing. One very common form of resistance was the hunger strike. Ah, uh, yes. Because enslaved people, they, they, they did rise up in insurrection, but they're in chains, and so it's not easy to do that. But you can just stop eating. Mm. And what captains, ship captains would do to prevent that is they carried on board something called the speculum oris, which they would force down the throats of hunger strikers and pour a kind of liquid oh. gruel down their throat to try to keep them alive. Oh, so even at the level of life and death, yeah. it was a tremendous struggle. But, but what really impressed me most of all was that these Africans on board these ships never accepted their status as so-called slaves or property. They fought back in just every way you can imagine. And, and the concept of resistance comes in so many forms, like you mentioned, just a few of just wanting to throw yourself overboard or resistance and not eating right. and, and fighting back, obviously, physical form. And, and one of the most important kinds of resistance is, is something that uh, I think is, is really quite extraordinary. Uh, in slave, now see, people need to know that on any given slave ship, let's say there are, the average size would be 300 enslaved Africans on board a ship. They would probably come from 15 or 20 different ethnic and linguistic groups. Right. And this is a key point that many people don't realize, that there were so many different languages and cultures within exactly. the African Precisely. The West ship. Africa is the most complex linguistic zone in the world. Uh, there are about 2,000 different languages spoken there. 
so what that meant was that many of these Africans could not really understand each other. But what happened, see, they're on these vessels for frequently a very long time, sometimes on the coast before right, the Middle Passage begins right. as the captain Cap is acquiring uh -huh. a full human cargo. And they, they start to develop new ways of communicating with each other. And they develop what anthropologists call fictive kinship. Mm. What that means is that, uh, for example, you and I are on a vessel. We're not related, but I start calling you my sister. Yeah. And you start calling me your brother. Mm. Uh, and so th this is the creation mm -hmm. of a kin system. People are not biologically related, but the idea is that we're in this together. Mm. You know, and there is that old phrase, we're all in this boat together. Yeah, literally. They yeah, were literally one. in this boat together. And so consequently, the building of a network of support just for the sake of survival was itself a creative act in the context of this I mean, this is a vessel of howling misery. I yeah. mean, people are dying, uh, the, 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 the conditions are horrific. Uh, it was said that in Charleston, South Carolina, with the wind blowing a certain way, mm. you could smell a slave ship before huh. you could see it. I can imagine. Uh, so, so the fact that in the middle of all of this violence and death, premature death, there are people doing creative things to survive. To me, this is uh, very hopeful and, and very dramatic. And you think this is the nature of humanity, though, that instinct to survive in creative ways? I think it is a very deep instinct, and I, and I think there probably is something quite universal about it. Yeah. But I wouldn't want to underestimate the achievement of this. In other words, it was a struggle to do this, and the uh, ship captains did not want people showing solidarity to each other, did not want this kind of ethic of mutual aid, of trying to help each other uh, through these difficult times. Uh, the, 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 the ship captain would torture people who right. they felt were doing anything to resist. But how did they separate people? Because if the captains or the people who managed to sort who went on the ships didn't know to distinguish between the different cultures, they just threw them on randomly because of their size or right. they, gender. They, they need to remember, they are buying uh, human bodies to work on plantations. Right. So, so, mm -hmm. so what they want are young men and women who are strong and healthy and likely to produce profits for plantation owners. Mm. That's the principle of selection for a slave ship captain and the doctor who would be on board every ship to medically inspect the people who are going to be purchased. Right, like okay. cattle. Sorry? Like cattle when they exactly begin. Exactly like cattle, exactly like cattle. So, um, Can we throw in the woman's aspect? Yes. Because how is, does that distinguish? Uh, women were especially vulnerable on these ships right. uh, after being subjected to quite humiliating medical inspections. Yes. They would be thrown aboard the ship and on the lower deck of a slave ship there was a segregation of men and women. Okay. Section for men, section for boys, section for women, section for girls. They were, they were kept separate. It was felt that they could be managed more easily if they were kept separate. Was that so? 
Uh, I, I'm not sure that it is so because mm. there was tremendous resistance from both men and, and they women. Still managed to find ways, right? They still managed <laughs> to find ways. Some women would be selected as the captain's favorites. Yes, meaning they would be forced uh, into prostitution. And in they the probably got pregnant canon. too. Would they oftentimes? So, some did get pregnant. Some were actually already pregnant when they came right. on the vessels. So what happens to so, that? Or the documentations of well, pregnancies? Well, uh, there are there are both images and and documentary accounts of women giving birth in the middle passage. Wow. Uh, And uh, those women would take their babies with them, whether they were sold. But but here's the thing I would also emphasize. The the means of control on board the ship did vary by gender. And and rape was a a, a major weapon in the effort to try to control women. Uh, especially by the captain and the officers of the ship, but sometimes by the ordinary sailors. So the the, uh, the sexual assault of women captives was a major part of the slave ship experience. Yeah, no, it's a very disturbing area. That and and the concept of reproduction. You're talking about how these slaves. were meant to work in the plantations, and the, the concept of reproducing more slaves to reinforce that. That's right. Although that actually had that idea has a history. For mm-hmm. example, in the early period of say sugar production in the West Indies, the they were making so much money that the plantation owners would literally work enslaved people to death, and then buy more with the profits they produced. Uh, uh, in sugar. After the slave trade is abolished in 1807-1808, plantation owners had to pay more attention to women's reproduction and to try to reproduce the labor force since they were were not able to buy slaves from Africa anymore. Wow. And the children who came out of the slave ships, what is, was it, it, they followed the mother, right? Something about the... They followed the the mother. Um, Some Slave ship captains did not like to, to buy children. Other slave ship captains bought almost only children because they felt like they were the easiest to control. Um, but uh, it is important it, as you form a mental image of the slave ship to realize that children were a very significant part of that experience. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, there's countless aspects that we don't even think about that are part of this uh, gruesome process. Um, Let's take a breather with, I have another song that you also um, would like us to play. Uh, It's called Motherless Child. But before I do that, quick um, announcement for My City Bikes. Riding bikes, not just for the ultra fit environmentalists, hipsters, or little kids. That's why My City Bike is offering Beginner's Guide for Bicycling that contains easy bike rides and routes to the community and instructions for need-to-know DIY maintenance. For more information or to download the Beginner Biking app, you can visit mycitybikes.org. That's mycitybikes.org. And you see them all over campus and all over Honolulu, in fact. And Marcus, just to sway off a little bit, as you've been in Hawaii for, what, a couple of months now? Three months. Um, have you felt, you know, race relations on this island are very unique. They are. You know, we, we, there's such a huge Asian population. I'm just curious to know what your insights are, having been here mm. for this short time. And yeah, reference. I'd, I'd say the, the ethnic slash, slash racial relations of Hawaii are uh, exceedingly complex, and, and I don't pretend to understand it 
uh, entirely. I am impressed by the uh, friendliness and the uh, generosity of people that I've met here of, of many different ethnic backgrounds. I think there's a, a welcoming aspect to this culture, but I think there are uh, probably some deeper issues that need to be addressed here yeah. as anywhere else in the United States. But the truth is the history of forced labor in Hawaii is different. I mean, that, and that you do have so many uh, Japanese and Chinese indentured servants mm -hmm. who came. Uh, so in this case, too, the history of race relations is closely bound up with the history of labor relations and how the wealth of these islands was actually formed mm. by a plantation system. <laughs> okay, let's also recognize that continuity. So th these things always leave very significant legacies, and, uh, and and people need to be conscious of them. Yeah, and because we're reading the uh, mini headed hydra in your class right now, that's a little bit on my mind. So this is another well-known book of yours, uh, co-authored by. Uh, Peter Leinberg, Leinberg. Leinberg. Um, and so the concept of multiplicity too I think that's relevant to the Hawaiian cultural Definitely. kind of um, and going back to the slave ship is also multiplicity because it's not one factor it's never just one factor right and, and, and the truth is the Africans who come on board those ships are mo a motley crew yes they're multi-ethnic the sailors who are on board those ships are multi-ethnic uh, Hawaii is a very multi-ethnic yes. society, and so these are there are some interesting continuities of the ways in which the peoples of the world have gotten all mixed up. And it's funny because the term motley crew has been reduced to such a kind of a funky term, this image of right. this rock band type of a right. gathering. Right. And um, but let's let's go back. You see, I'm I'm going off again off tangent but going back to the song that you um, had suggested you want to talk a little bit about that yes uh, this is a famous song play this by, underneath by Richie Havens mm -hmm. called motherless child and it has within it the the echoes of the slave trade because a lot of children were separated from their mothers uh, and a lot of them were taken a long way from their home yeah we were just talking about the women's plight so let's enjoy this Richie Havens freedom motherless child So that's a little taste of uh, some songs that was uh, inspired by the slave slave ship, Marcus, would you say? Or just the slavery yeah, I, in general? I think it contains a memory of slavery and uh, crossing of the Middle Passage. Yeah, so again, that was A Motherless Child by Richie Havens. Now, listen, Marcus, we got a call, a very kind of a passionate call um, from a lady named Barbara who wanted to voice an opinion on what we were talking about because she heard the word multiplicity and she, I, I felt her, um, her boiling blood on how her, her question poses that if the news, you know, for once didn't even mention like if there was like this first female or first Asian uh, female this or first black female this, like if we took that out of the conversation, how would what would be different in our world? Meaning really how we have really kind of reinforced the position of women and the racial aspect of women um, in our kind of general media world and how we always have to use that as if we're celebrating it but at the same time we're kind of pushing it back down if you know what I'm saying it's, it's like is it still a thing and what would happen and how how do you think people would think if we didn't have to recognize the first this and that yeah. well let, let me take the question a slightly different way and say why do we need to have Black History Month and Women's History Month 
Yeah, but there's no Chinese American History Month, and there's like it can go on and on. It can go on and on, <laughs> and and basically, when a movement of people demands that they have their own History Month, when they're strong enough, they'll get it. So, so I think there's a there there is a, a real issue that I think the caller points to, which is that there are limitations to uh, identity politics, because I think ultimately we have to uh, for, for those people who want a, a society with social justice, I think we have to concentrate on things that connect us, and not only on the things that make us separate from each other. So, uh, in my view. Um, there is a way in which the, shall we say, the, um, the media does pander to what they imagine popular desires to be. And of course, they're always looking for novelty or a way of presenting something new. But I think that the general, we will have made real progress when issues of race, class, and gender are part of every conversation rather than brought up as kind of a special moment. Do you think that'll ever happen? I think it will eventually really? happen. Yeah, I think it will. I'm, I'm an optimist about the future. Which aspect do you think will come first? I, there's no way of knowing. <laughs> there's no way of knowing. Um, it's going to depend on a lot of things that are beyond our understanding and far beyond our control. Mm. But the future is up to us collectively as people. Mm. We make decisions, uh, some decisions to perpetuate things as they are, uh, but we can also make decisions to, to change. And we really need to make decisions to change now, because if we don't, the planet will be destroyed. Oh, I know. We, you know that, that this is we're a, halfway there. This is a very big issue. The extinction of species is multiplying at a truly alarming rate. Uh, global warming is every, that's almost every month there's a new, revised, more dire prediction. Uh, the possibility that these islands will be underwater, uh, that New York City will be underwater, right. Miami is at great risk. So but again, going back to the multiplicity of elements that are involved with yeah, these right. actions. We don't, we don't want a simplistic explanation for the problems that we have, yeah. but we do know uh, exactly what has created global warming, and that's the industrialization of the world. Right. You know, we, we need to stop using fossil fuels immediately. Yeah. Uh, this much we know. This and that's is, why Anthropocene is such an important aspect exactly. of study, particularly even in the university here, they're linking it to feminist studies and so sure. many and so forth. No, no, this is very important here, and I think uh, oceanographic studies yeah. at, at UH are very important for understanding the dilemma that we now face. So it, it's not a matter of whether we change, because we will have to change if we want to see life perpetuated on this planet. Um, but it's a question of how we change. But and, how? And how the changes benefit the broadest number of people. Right. And so you mentioned before that we need people to kind of associate or understand or at least have the sensitivity um, of certain issues kind of on a larger commonality, if you will. But the problem is something like going back to slavery or slave ships is how do people today even uh, identify or become interested in that part of history in understanding where we are today? Or if, yeah. like, so if, say, Chinese, why, do they, why should they, you know... 
Yeah. Okay. Feel. Yeah. This is this is a question that I frequently get. I've I, after I published this book, The Slave Ship, I gave about 120 talks <laughs> in almost every conceivable uh, situation, and and did many different kinds of groups: library groups, community groups, academic institutions. But you're received as a privileged white I male. I understand that, and I and I'm quick to admit that I do speak from a position of privilege. But, but here's what I say. It almost inevitably happens that someone will say, as I'm talking about the slave trade, somebody will raise their hand and say, uh, my family immigrated from Eastern Europe in 1920. We had nothing to do with it. To which I say, well, let's just talk about that a little bit. Mm. Why, do you, why did your family immigrate to the United States? Was it because there were good jobs here? Was it because there was wealth kind of wealth in the United States, an economic dynamism that they couldn't find somewhere else. And well, yes, that's, that's the reason. Why do you think the United States was such a wealthy country in the 19th and 20th century? And one part, one big part of the answer to that question is slavery. Mm-hmm. So, so this is not something that it's easy to find a place to stand outside of. That these issues of super exploitation, uh, of oppression, and of tremendous wealth that grew from the slave trade and the slave system, this affects us all hugely right now, whether we want to admit it or not. It lives on in the forms of discrimination, in deep structural inequality, in premature death, demographic rates vary quite systematically by race. So we are still living with the consequences of the past. And so my view is either we face that or we don't. And if we don't, then there are going to be other consequences because we will just perpetuate the previous patterns that were created by a not only a slavery but a highly racialized political, hmm. social, and economic system well after the uh, slavery itself was abolished. In other words, uh, exploitation and discrimination did not appear with the abolition, did disappear with the abolition of slavery. They changed forms. The plantations were refigured as sharecropping systems uh, with very low levels of education for uh, people of African descent. Um, so what happens is that uh, oppression gets institutionalized. And it uh, is very hard to overcome that. So I think this is something that we really need to be talking about. And uh, even on the uh, in the younger education system, because you know I, I look at my kids and they they touch on uh, civil rights and they touch on perhaps even a little bit of slavery, but on a very very general broad basis. Exactly. And they don't get in. And going back to your history from below is they don't feel the people. So how can people rewrite or reinterpret and 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 provide for the younger generation ways to? Um, embrace this form of history to challenge the existing one? Yeah, I, I think it's a really crucial question, Crystal. And I think the, uh, the answer is that we need people who are doing this kind of history to be working closely with uh, school teachers, uh, 
Mm. Uh, I've done a number of workshops with teachers, and I found that they are hungry for this kind of information, that yeah. they want to teach in this way. Uh, my daughter is actually a high school, public high school ah. teacher in New York City. Uh, I visit her school uh, in Manhattan, and we talk about these kinds of things. And so there are a lot of teachers who want to do this, yeah. but we have to make that connection of the people who are writing this kind of history, yes. making it available to teachers who can then convey it to young people in a way that can make a difference to them. But they got to get through the barriers of the institution and the blocks of exactly. people who want to maintain that power structure. Exactly. The state of Texas, for example, uh, has been very repressive in terms of what it actually allows teachers to teach. Mm. There's been a big struggle about whether Martin Luther King and the Civil Rights Movement <laughs> should be taught in Texas schools. Kind of like how the Holocaust didn't exist yeah, in some places? It's a kind of denial, and it's just outrageous. Mm. But, but people have to fight. They, they have to fight. And, and fighting for a truthful version of our past mm. is really important. And, and, and the truth is, look... The, the, the glorious parts of our history are easy to face, right? Mm -hmm, all mm -hmm. the great ideas of the American Revolution, that soaring rhetoric, yes. all people are created equal. It's easy to talk about that, and we love to talk about that, and we should talk about that. But what do you do with the dark pages of your history? Right. That is the real test of a democratic society. Can you deal with the difficult stuff? Uh, can you acknowledge the fact that the man who wrote the Declaration of Independence, Thomas Jefferson, mm -hmm. was personally denying 187 men, women, and children of their equality and freedom because he owned them mm -hmm. as slaves, mm. right? That great document in our history, the Declaration of Independence, was written by a slave. Right. The foundations exactly. of our yeah. history so, is so, based on... So we need, to be, we need to have the courage to teach this, not, uh, not shy away from the contradictions of our history, but actually face them. Teach it. Tell the truth. Let's, let's tell the truth. I was going to add to come from different angles, you know, instead of just throwing darts straight forward is you've got these boomerangs and side, side kind of, you know, punches because we're so um, conditioned to receive things in a certain way. Right. And if you can find, like you always say, creative sources, not just in the books, not just in how we hear things on the media, is how do we learn for ourselves exactly and, and and learning how to learn yeah is a big part of it uh, and challenging what we think we know exactly i think that's a hard one that is a hard one that is a hard one i teach a you know a u.s history survey course at the university of pittsburgh and uh, i wage a battle against the mythology that uh, people bring they they don't have an actual knowledge of american history what they have is american mythology <laughs> for the most part in their heads and so i try to give them a much more complex view of what actually happened and how that can be more useful to us and uh, how do they take it though because most people who have that kind of uh, confidence of their self-knowledge will not want to accept it, that it, it challenge is true. there is some resistance but among young people i find that okay. they're extremely open yeah. You know, and it almost always happens that uh, uh, at some point in the class, some student will raise his or her hand and say, how come I was never taught this? <laughs> yes. And to me, that's like the great teaching moment. I right. say, well, that's a really good question. Let's ask that. Why, why do you think you didn't get this other history yeah. that I'm teaching? And why did you get 
the one that you've got. Yes. Well, it turns out that somebody put that other history in your head, serving a certain kind of agenda. Yeah. Uh, and, and as it happens, uh, the, the actual history is not only more powerful, it's more interesting. Yes. Powerful, um, challenging, difficult, and complex, but we need it. Um, So, Marcus, to wrap up, I know, unfortunately, the time goes so fast, and we have so many things more to probe, but um, what are some uh, words of wisdom you'd like to share with our KTUH listeners? Well, I've been very impressed by this university. I'll say that. Uh, I hope that uh, people appreciate what, what they have here, and I hope they will work to make it better. Uh, and of course, my advice is always uh, read the history that will challenge what you believe, hmm. uh, and, and stretch your minds. Try to think about uh, history in a broader way, because history is with us every moment of the day. Everything has a history, uh, and it shapes us in ways that we don't often see. Yeah. So I, I think that, uh, that this is an important thing to do, and I, and I think especially, I mean, the issue of race is so deep in American history. Uh, and I think that now uh, there is an overwhelming consensus among scholars that race and slavery are not just uh, a part of American history, but they're really at the heart of it. Mm. Uh, and, and that we really need to come to grips with. Yeah, and it's no light statement there to say that our no, country's said, built on it. And in fact, I just wanted to add, because throughout my documentary process, I interviewed some of the black community in Augusta, Georgia, and I remember distinctly one wonderful, he's a teacher, and I asked him what his thoughts were on, on suggesting how we relook at mm-hmm. things. And he says, history. And you would love him because mm-hmm. he just really, really went back to the basics of and, and the foundations of why history is so important and how we um, view and, and move forward with our actions and connections Sorry. with the I, world. I should mention for any of your viewers who, who may be interested, on, uh, on May 1st, I'll be giving my, in a way, chair lecture uh, and the title of that lecture is The Democratic Power of History from Below. Mm. So some of these themes will come up. Uh, uh, May 1st, uh, do you know where? Uh, or can we source it somewhere? Sorry? Can we find that information somewhere? Yes, we can, but I don't know <laughs> Okay, you know what? I'll find it and I'll try to post it on my <laughs> thing. Um, but before that is I want to remind people, I did remember the uh, screening of The Ghosts of Amistad, which is an award-winning documentary film directed by Tona Buba uh, based on your book. Right. And that is going to be at the... Uh, uh, Doris, Doris Duke, Duke Theater the, mm-hmm. at the Honolulu Museum on April 11th uh, in the evening, correct? 7 o'clock. 7 o'clock. So that is open to the public. Please go and uh, I believe, Marcus, you will be there and you I'll will hope there. to I'll say a few words. The, the making of the film, um, just to let people know, it's based on a trip to Sierra Leone in West Africa. Uh, all of the uh, rebels on board the Amistad slave ship wow. uh, who rose up and captured that vessel were from Sierra Leone. So we went uh, back to Sierra Leone to the villages that they came from and interviewed elders about whether they had any surviving memory of the Amistad story. Wow. To retrace the footsteps of this that haunted this whole history and haunted you perhaps is a very interesting process that we look forward to seeing so thank you so much professor Edeker, for enlightening us um on the dark pages of history as you mentioned um, i'm going to leave a darker song with everyone it's billy holiday's strange fruit because um you know lynching is something that, that that is ghastly and recent and um 
I even have in my research have seen things that have come across within even the Chinese community, and it's it's despicable. And um, to use song and poetry and books to um, enlighten us on on heavy things are really important. So just enjoy this song, and uh, again, thank you, Mark Marcus, for being here.